You're listening to Accents, a radio show for literature, art and culture. My name is Katerina Stojkova. I'm your host and with me today is poet, writer, teacher, Elizabeth Beck. Hi, Elizabeth. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. So wonderful to have you across from me and talking. Yes, it's been a while and it's exciting to be back on Accents. This is great. You always have several projects at the same time. Uh, what are you working on these days? Well, um, I'm working on a new community service project, um, a monthly poetry series called Poetry at the Table. And uh, we're a first Wednesday of the month poetry series at Kenwick Table from 6 to 9 p.m. So there's an open mic and there are adult feature poets from all over the state and the region, actually. Uh, Jay McCoy and I founded the Teen Howl Poetry Series in 2011, and um, I'm thrilled to report that we're still running strong. That's over at Third Street Stuff, but Jay and I don't actually lead Teen Howl anymore. Uh, former students, former Teen Howl poets who were 17 years old back in the day, Jessica Taylor and Hunter Nelson, are now in their late 20s. And uh, they are now hosting and running Teen Howl. So now with uh, their confidence uh, in place on the stage and running it, Jay and I decided to turn our attention. And ours is uh, more for an adult crowd, I would have to say. But of course, anybody can come to the to Kenwick table. They serve food and they have a nice bar and coffee. And, and the first feature was... Um Poet, artist, musician, John Lucky. How did it go? It was phenomenal. Um, there are, are there are many many music opportunities, open mic and uh, you know jam and sessions. So we don't ordinarily allow music at poetry at the table. But um, John had I don't know. It was I wouldn't call it more a song so much. He had his guitar, but it was spoken word. And then parts of it did break into refrains. It was it was lovely, and it tied in really well to the big um, opening that he had to reveal uh, his moon poem at Louis Gard Studios. So it was just a, a really lovely event, and we had a completely full open mic list, lots of poets uh, lining up and reading and sharing and new voices and. Um, old familiar faces as well. It, it was just beautiful. It felt like a homecoming in a way. You have a new poetry book coming up. Tell us about it. I do. Thank you for asking. I have a collection of poems called Dancing on the Page that will come out in 2024 by Rabbit House Press in Versailles, Kentucky. Dancing on the Page. It has to do with music, right? It does. And dancing... Um, yes, both um, physically, literally, and then spiritually, metaphorically. Um, it's a bit of an autobiographical collection. Um, it kind of uh, focuses on how I connected with live music uh, to heal from trauma in my life. And I've written about that in several of my other books. Um, but this one's really fun because I go back to childhood memories of music and early influences like MTV and music that I learned from boys at summer camp, uh, all the way through to connecting with the Grateful Dead. And then, of course, my love for the band Fish, which are both progressive rock uh, bands and 
the community, and then it ends in prayer. Because um, when I go to shows and I'm connecting and tapping in, I feel like that's my way of celebrating life and my form of prayer. How does music help one overcome trauma? I think it allows me to have an avenue for my energy. It helps me to focus. Um, I was watching the series of Lessons in Chemistry, which is a series made from a, a novel that I read. And uh, the chemists like to listen to very disjointed jazz, Thelonious Monk, uh, Coltrane, Miles Davis. And that's what I found myself doing very young, floating into music, having a place in my mind where I could go to meditate in peace um, is the way that I've uh, used music to heal. What about drumming? Drumming, yes. <laughs> that's a huge part of it. Um, about 15 years ago, uh, I began exploring traditional West African drumming. So I've drummed with Trip Bratton, and I still drum with his group Pangea. And, um, the, you know, the two hours a week that I'm in drumming, the rhythms are so complicated, I really can't focus on anything else but what's happening at the moment. And I think that's kind of the goal of pure meditation. Um, for me, sitting in silence uh, doesn't work as well as sitting with rhythm, sitting with music. However, interestingly, I think because I've been so saturated in music, lately in my painting studio, it's I have not been playing music, and I have been sitting with that. Um, of course, though, when I write poetry, I don't write to music. I was taught very early by a very wise teacher that the poems themselves were the music. So um, you actually taught me to listen to my poems. But when I write fiction, I listen to music. I, I feel a little bit more freed to do that. <laughs> Who are some of your most favorite artists? The music artists. The music artist, yeah. Trey Anastasio. Uh, he's the lead guitarist in uh, Fish, the band Fish. He's a musical genius. What I love about Trey is I've been following this band for 35 years, and I'm still hearing new music come from them. They're not recycling. They don't play the same songs. In fact, uh, they did kind of a challenge where they did 13 nights uh, at Madison Square, run, uh, Madison Square Gardens um, on one run and never repeated the same song in 13 shows. And it, that's what we all love about Fish. We go because we don't know what's going to happen. But Trey um, is sober, and sobriety is a big part of his life. He runs the uh, Divided Sky Foundation and Water Wheel which uh, helps to create uh, facilities for rehabilitation. And to see someone sober and really coming into his own as an artist has been an extraordinary process. I think that we lost out on a lot of years with Jerry Garcia, who was my first musical artist that I fell in love with from The Grateful Dead. And his body was racked by drug abuse and addiction, and he had diabetes. And so... Um, I would say those are influential artists uh, on my life. Um, I do love Jennifer Hartswick, who is a trumpet player, and Natalie Cressman, who is a trombone player. And both of those women are glorious singers. And, of course, I'd be remiss not to mention Susan Tedeschi. Um, she's kind of the goddess of the GM band scene right now, and she's just a beautiful spirit. I, I love listening to her music, too. I would love 
now to listen to the music of your poems. Okay. Read us several, please. I will. So, what I wanted to do with this manuscript is have you tap into your relationships uh, to music as well, because I think a lot of people have um, their own personal relationships to music. So, do you remember the first song you memorized? Singing along, maybe snapping with the beat? Not a nursery rhyme nor a lullaby, and not the alphabet song. The tune you heard on the radio wormed its way into your soul so deeply. Every time you hear it played, nostalgia floods your heart, a strange sense of deja vu. Maybe you smell coconut and chlorine or even popcorn and pine trees. Memory defined by melody and love remembered within beats. A song for the first kiss, another for a broken heart, the one chosen for the first dance. The other your child seems to know. Which song loops inside your head when you're not thinking? Is there one that catches you can't seem to shake? How many songs can you sing, remembering lyrics from years ago when <laughs> you can't even remember where you left your keys? What song do you hope to hear when it's all over? You know, everybody has favorite parts of a concert. Some people absolutely love the crescendos and the big lifts of music where they get to cheer and other people really enjoy the lot scene um, and seeing all of their friends and the vendors on Shakedown Street. Other people really like set break where they get to hook up with their friends and maybe see people they haven't seen in years. Moment before is always my favorite. The breath of anticipation tingles down my spine making the top of my head spin enough to feel giddy when house lights shock darkness as the band takes the stage. Crowd roars greeting, blasting on defeat prepared to party the way only concerts inspire. Collective concentration, symbiotic heartbeat found within notes, vibrating back and forth between stage and audience, madly in love with each other. Um, and I'll end here with um, a new form of poetry that I uh, really kind of flexed in this collection, which are these dense prose poems. Um, I did concern myself with line lineation, I will say, but I didn't make it a block. Um, so it's somewhere between kind of a flash fiction uh, and prose poetry. And the epigraph reads from The Velvet Underground. If Jenny said when she was just five years old, there's nothing happening at all. We would have been best friends. Probably why I bark laughter of recognition hearing these lyrics. At 18, I knew there was absolutely nothing happening at all, yet everything was. Jerry Garcia shines his love light and I follow. The world melts away as I enter a universe I've yet to abandon. Grateful every note cradles my broken soul. Relieved to feel at home when I have no other. Open to receiving love when strangers stop strangers and roses are free. All stemming from a simple song I discovered in a college art studio. In those days, I said everything I wanted to say with a brush on canvas. Seeking truth in blades of grass. Following Holden Caulfield. Studying psychedelic clouds. 
Finding Lucy's Diamonds, My First Steps in Front of Television, A Toddler Walking as If on a Bubble, as Neil Armstrong lands on the moon, after Neil Cassidy drives the bus I get on, escaping parents who should have been the death of us all. I'm still wondering how I'm alive. Oh, wow. I think those are lovely. And you know, something happened while you were explaining a little bit earlier about the space and the refuge that we would find in um, in music to escape trauma, to dip into another energy that I remembered my childhood and my teenhood and how I would just spend hours sitting and living inside songs that I liked. And that was pretty amazing. That was otherworldly. That's the word that I would use. And then one day I stopped. I stopped listening to music and I didn't listen to pretty much any music for probably like a decade or two. And uh, I haven't figured out what was that about or how did that happen. But I am so grateful to you today for what you just shared because it, I mean, it's not like it's about me, but this is what happens when you hear something that is significant on a scale beyond the author's personal story. It catches something into the reader and pulls something out uh, into the open. And I wanted to tell you that this happened now during our conversation, and I deeply appreciate it because it gave me a, a starting point to examine and explore something that would be beneficial to me. I'm I'm honored. Isn't that the goal that that our love letters, our poems, connect? That 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 whoever it is that receives my poems goes yes oh yeah yeah I get that or I, I need to look at that um Pauletta Hansel read this collection and offered some kind words and what struck me was something that I hadn't thought about that makes perfect sense she said that in this collection I was searching for home and that I found my home within music within the notes but also within the community um, because the, these particular bands I'm talking about have a very uh, unique community to other bands in the fact that we travel as villages and set up huge vending sites at all of the parking lots before the shows that last, if not hours, then days, if they're there for a couple-day run, and you become family with the people. And what's interesting is, you know, my whole life of going to shows, I was always a an audience member, but now that I've written the Summer Tour trilogy, I am invited on the lot as a vendor, and that's an entirely new family. So you set up on the lot, and you know you become lot family with the people on the right and the left, and we look out for each other, make change and jokes, and go for ice. And I have found that also um, here in Lexington, I participate in Art on the Town, the Mayor's Project, and it's phenomenal. Um, and the first few times I vended, I became family with these beautiful artists that are here in town, like Enrique Gonzalez and 
um, they've invited me in to bring my drum and, you know, sell art and pal around with them. And it's just been this extraordinary experience. See what happens when you retire from teaching. You, get, <laughs> you actually have space and time to do all these wonderful adventures that you hadn't ever been able to do before. To continue with the theme of song and music, please tell us about Swan Songs. Swan Songs is my collection of short stories. It's a debut collection of short stories that is coming out by Accents Publishing in late 2024. And it's a 13 stories about women and how they interpret the world through music. So each story has its own genre of music that somehow weaves its way through the story. And this time I really went on a reach. So there's a uh, young concierge that interprets the world through Carly Simon and reconciles her grief over the loss of her mother through the connection of Carly Simon's lyrics. Um, another story is devoted to a 70-something-year-old woman uh, basically taking a walk in Manhattan to the deli to get her matzo ball soup, and it's all steeped in jazz. Uh, so go back into Duke Ellington and Coltrane and Thelonious Monk, and she refers to the village vanguard. Another one's about Dolly Parton, Rolling Stones, Tina Turner. Uh, you know, I had to throw her in for good measure, for sure. Um, but um, I really enjoyed writing it, and I was very cognizant of looking at each one of the characters and representing different age ranges, different cultures, different backgrounds, and then kind of seeking that music and thinking, how can I interpret the world or what, what music would make sense for that particular character or that kind of thing, so... Did you do any research on those songs? Oh, a lot. Um, for example, I went on a deep dive about Tina Turner was a Buddhist monk. and or, uh, <laughs> She wasn't a Buddhist monk. I'm sorry. Tina Turner <laughs> practiced Buddhism and meditated and had an altar space. And there are YouTube videos of Tina Turner um, teaching different chants and different ways to create altar spaces and her meditative practices. I never knew that about Tina Turner. So that was thrilling for me to learn. And um, I really enjoyed the research that went into each part. Um, one of the stories is set at Moonlight Gardens, which is in Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, where Riverbend is in Coney Island. And I've been there for some small shows over the years, But I didn't know that in the 40s and 50s and even into the 60s, they used to do big band shows where women would dress in the big ball skirt, ball skirts, and um, they would twirl around. And the, the floor of Moonlight Gardens is extraordinary. It's marble, and it's a mosaic kind of thing. And so I was able to do a lot of research for that to create the setting of one of the stories. Why 13? Baker's dozen. Uh, I love cooking. Yeah. And how, how does food figure in together with mu uh, with music? Um. Oh, that's well. I'm always I always have music going when I'm cooking. That's one place I definitely blast the music for sure. Um, and I'm always playing music when I entertain as well. I have certain playlists for different occasions and different people and knowing who I, I like to cultivate that. It started from a creating playlists for the classroom because I wanted to find crossovers with my students that were appropriate for the classroom setting. 
and it just kind of spilled out from there. But I, I anticipate the, one of the next projects in writing that I'll be doing will be regarding cooking and my deep connection to cooking and culinary arts. I'm, I'm just a home cook, but it's a deep tradition in my family. I think that food is a big thread through Swan's songs. It actually is. Now that I think about it, there's uh, the Chex Mix cereal in one of them, and then the last, uh, the last story is about a chef. Kind of my fantasy if I ever opened a restaurant in Mount Adams in Cincinnati and like a little bistro or sometimes my husband Kevin and I dream about like chucking it all and going down to the Caribbean and he'll have um, a fishing boat and he can take uh, charter tours out to fish and I will have a restaurant where I have two soups for the locals that they can come and get in the morning for their lunches but then evening I won't know what I'm cooking until Kevin brings the fish back from the catch of the day and I'll have a chalkboard and I'll write it out and every day it'll be wiped off in a new recipe and new foods every day. Just very, very tiny. It's a small dream, but it's fun to fantasize about. <laughs> small dream, but sounds well thought out. Yeah, right? well, we spend a lot of time thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We do love living on the pond, though, and I do love Kentucky, so we're pretty content right now. Tell me about the title, Swan Songs. Swan Songs, I like the idea of it kind of the concept of some of it being not just your end song, but the height, you know, when when you're at that pinnacle moment. And I tried to capture both that that invigoration and that spirit of energy of, of each one of the stories being at that height of energy. And, uh, you know, I tried to work off something with the blue herons because that's my favorite bird on the pond and it's the one I seek solace and I've written a lot of poems about the blue heron but swan songs and the alliteration and of course then the concept of song and I like yeah I I kind of picture like a Josephine Baker on stage and the light on her um and that being the swan song that moment in time you are one of the hardest working writers (laughs) I know thank you (laughs) Um, I find it inspiring. How do you do it? How do you plan doing? Do you plan? Yes, somewhat. Uh, I have a messy but organization. I absolutely plan. Um, When I'm generating words for a manuscript, I am pretty disciplined. I do a thousand words a day every day, and I do that in the morning when my brain is the most fresh on some coffee um, and lots of water. And then I break in the afternoon and walk, and then I spend my afternoons painting and doing my art. So while I'm painting and doing my art, it gives me opportunity to dream up what I need to write the next day. Um, and as I said, I have dreams of projects like a cooking project, but um, I know that January 1, I'll be devoted to a new novel. It's called Working Title, Backward Down the Number Line. And uh, I've written about 10,000 words, but I couldn't find my way in. I just couldn't find my way in. So I got distracted in writing a memoir. (laughs) And I wrote that for six months from about, I guess, a little less than that. Five months, maybe, I don't know. It was around June to October. Mm. Uh, And I, I put that in the drawer. I'm not seeking publication on that. It was more of something I just had to write. But I was as disciplined with that. Every morning I wake up. And I had to write my thousand words. And I think doing that practice 
it is really not that insurmountable. You're, you're you're only talking about three four hours of work. I guess as a team. Only yeah, you're kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> sit your butt in the chair. The fifty ten rule applies. I, I I sit for fifty minutes. I make sure I get up and walk around for ten minutes. Fold a load of laundry. Empty the dishwasher. Something that's brainless, but it will inspire better writing when you sit back down. Uh, so I do employ that. Also because I can get rather obsessive. Uh, and then I'll write myself into a frenzy. So balancing and pacing, all of that. But I finally found my way into backward down the number line. I do journal writing every day, um, which is separate from the generating of the thousand words. And I'm not uh, strict with what time I write in my journal. For example, this morning I had no time or inclination. Uh, and then my treat will be later this afternoon. I'll write for a little bit. And that, that's my personal pages. But I always do that no matter what I'm writing. And I have a working manuscript of poems called Kentucky I Know, and uh, it's read with a comma, so it's Kentucky, comma, I know. I like that because it reads in a couple different ways, the, depending on how you say it, it's, but it's my love letter, and I've been here 20 years, it will be 20 years next year, and uh, I love Kentucky, I love my home now, and I wanted to explore that, but that's a manuscript I've been working on for about two years, I don't push poems like I push prose. Prose, I'm much more a thousand words a day. Well, how can you do that with poems? You can't, <laughs> you can't write a thousand words when it comes to a manuscript of poems. I'm always writing poems, just always. And then I figure out where they belong or if there's something I need to explore. For example, like Kentucky, I know. But I anticipate that will take, it's been two, two, three years. It'll take five years to at least to finish that manuscript. And I, I like being slower and more intentional because I see a progression. For example, um, Jan LaPearl is a poet who has a beautiful new book called When the Land Sings Back. And what struck me most about that collection was the time that was obvious she took in writing those poems. They were not done in a sitting they were done over years, and the change of perspective and coming back to certain things, I think, is so instrumental when you're writing collections of poetry. They, 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 I just don't believe in writing them very quickly. I, I'm terrible at the nano write po thing, <laughs> like the 30 poems in 30-day kind of situations. It feels a little forced to me, but I admire people who do it. <laughs> So what about editing? So when you're generating new material, thousand words a day, every day, but what, what do you do when you're editing something? That's the whole next process, okay. and that's not as much fun. <laughs> that's where more of my obsessive nature comes in. So I'm What's combing. the process? I'm asking. Yeah. And I keep on asking because I'm about to sit down to edit something. So uh, uh. Other eyes are important. I have a poetry partner, Jay McCoy. He and I share first drafts, and we're honest with each other. Workshopping is fantastic when you can get it. Um, I always gain so much by other people. but um, Fiction projects. Fiction editing is very hard. For Summer Tour Trilogy, after I felt I had edited it, which took about three months for each book, I hired a professional editor and sent it to them. Now, here's what's cool. The the editor I hired for Under the Elm, I chose her because of her education at Vassar and other reasons. 
It was set in 1979, which is considered historical fiction. And she was a research woman. She knew her stuff. It was fantastic because if you get things wrong historically, it pulls the reader out of the story. So she would write to me, Elizabeth, hoodies, the, con- the, the name hoodies wasn't a thing till ni- the 90s. They're hooded sweatshirts, you know, things like that. I'm like, oh, thank you, thank you. So she caught a lot. And I submitted World Gone Mad to a contest that's very reputable and got notes back and we got a perfect score on the editing for that so I was really appreciative of the editors who worked with me and I rely upon my publishers and and I'm open and I listen Um, I think what's important when you're editing is to get your ego out of the game you're going to kill your darlings you just if it doesn't serve the manuscript it doesn't belong to be there and you need to make that decision what what's your goal the best book possible or squishing every last little tear in there. You know, I can keep my tears for the journal. I'm going for the good book. <laughs> and how might one produce new work and edit and have a creative life while they have a gasp full-time job? Right. Well, that was hard. I um, actually have a beautiful poem in Mama Tried called Planning Bell. And it talks about how I would use my planning bell to write poems Um, and I'll be honest when I was you know when Carter my son was in high school and I was teaching full-time at Utopia School uh, it was all I could do was to polish the one manuscript that I had started four years before that painted daydreams and then I was writing poems mama tried you know, here and there. But again, you have to give yourself space, time. And also, you know, it comes down to what's your priority of time? I'm getting at a a lovely middle age where I'm really choosing where I want to spend my time and how I want to spend it. And uh, maybe, I don't know, a little bit of mortality is nipping at my heels. But, you know, if not now, then when? So, and I also, I'm I'm inspired. I, I, I still have ideas And I'm looking forward. I hope what happens with my novel in progress that uh, with Summer Tour was magical. I wrote the first draft with Gurney Norman. I put it in a drawer for five years. I pulled it back out to revise it. When I did, all of a sudden those characters came to life. They were waking me in the middle of the night, telling me the story. It was extraordinary. I haven't experienced anything like that since. So (laughs) I'm hoping that with um, all of the careful notes and work for six months that I've done with Backward Down the Number Line, that now it's starting to gel. Because I like to know everything about my characters. I want to know their birthdays, their favorite colors, their favorite foods, their backstories, and then how far back do you go, right? Every story starts with an inception, but you have to have parents. And then do you include grandparents? So then when I'm reading, because I'm a voracious reader of fiction, I'm always exploring, okay, how far back did this protagonist go? How, you know, do, do, is there any mention of uncles, cousins? Like, you have to choose where you're limiting your story and what's important. And that in itself I could talk about for hours. I just love the craft of reading and writing and learning. Do you think that at some point in the future you may pull out this memoir from your desk drawer and do something with it? With distance and time. The The problem is or the barrier I have, when you publish a book, you need to be willing to talk about it. And that's not a manuscript I would really want to spend any time talking about. And I have a tendency to 
use writing to close chapters in my life. So Mama Tried was kind of encapsulated my writer-teacher life. And let's put it in a book and close it. My very first book, Insignificant, okay, let's take the childhood trauma and put it into a book and close it. Well, this particular manuscript, the memoir is called Glimmers, and I wrote about the subject matter and I put it in a drawer. I don't, I don't know when or if I'll be ready to then talk about it. I'd rather talk about music and art instead. Yeah, it's true. You know, I had a book that I didn't want to talk about, and I published it, and whenever I had uh, questions about it, I said, well, everything that I've wanted to say, it's in the book. Doesn't you know? make for a very good interview, does it? <laughs> no, it doesn't, but, but other people picked it up and talked about it, which was a completely different experience for me to hear other people talk about it. It can be uh, strengthening and vulnerable at the same time. I do still reference my first book when I'm teaching workshops. And lately I have been sought out to teach workshops about uh, what tools people use while writing about trauma. Uh, I can't promise to heal your trauma in two hours, <laughs> but I'll give you every trick of the trade that I used while I was writing about some really highly sensitive topics. And from that perspective, when it's instructional, when it's important, I absolutely will discuss it, you know, that kind of perspective. But it can be very vulnerable, and it depends on what you want to do with it. And, I mean, let's, let's face it, not every single book, we don't write just for the mere fact it's going to be out there. We write because we write. Or we write because you cannot not write. And we write because uh, it's just... Like you said earlier that music is a tool that saves lives, writing also is a tool that saves lives. As is visual art, painting, dance, all of the genres of art, I think it's a naturalistic human quality. If you, you know, teaching arts and humanities was fantastic for me to go all the way back to the Paleolithic, Neolithic time period and examine what the uses of Venus of Villendorf, the Cave of Lascaux, um, music, call and response, and then teaching the ancient Greeks and the traditions of spoken word and where all this came from. It's kind of the the heartbeat language or love language of humans is, is our creative instincts in order to make something that didn't exist before. That's a phenomenal, you know, thing. I, I get into, and I think this is a good and bad thing, again, obsessiveness, you know, if I make one thing, uh, for example, right now I'm folding book pages to make these beautiful trees, uh, holiday trees to uh, put on my vending cart to sell my books and art. And um, I didn't make one. I had to make 14, you know. <laughs> and that works great when you're, you know, when you're a painter. John Lackey works in series. You know, uh, Amy Lewis works in series. Any of the major artists, even going back... Uh, uh, Regardless, they all paint in series. How many self-portraits did Rembrandt create? Only Van Gogh matched it. They kept painting their own face over and over and over and over again. We're seeking something, right? So there's the philosophy of aesthetics, where there's the artist's intention, and then the art itself, and then the audience's response. Well, there's a huge distance sometimes between what you intend to make and what exists. And that's not to say that what exists maybe isn't you know good, 
But if if it's not what the artist intended, the artist is going to keep repeating it until they get closer to that intention. The work of art itself is alive and has a way of bothering you until it becomes manifest in some way. Yes. Yeah. I, I definitely like to get it done. I like I but I like to work. I like to work. I <laughs> Jay brought me a book uh, How to Sit, which <laughs> I'll I will sit when I'm old and I can't stand up anymore. But I'll sleep when I'm dead. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> or Fish says, I'm running so fast, my feet don't touch the ground. That's me right now, and it feels good. I feel energized. And not just even with the the um, writing and the art, walking. I'm, I'm walking three to four miles a day every single day because it feels good. It just feels good. I have one last question for you, and that is a question that I ask all my guests who teach creative writing, and that is, what is the most important thing you teach your students? If there is one thing that you want them to remember from your class or workshop, what is it? Um, write for yourself. Make your work important in your own life. And hopefully the rest will follow and people will follow along. And don't get really bogged down too much with the naysayers or the critics. You know, really just kind of focus on what you you want to communicate and what you want to say and how you want to say it and read 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 thank you thank you this was fun <laughs>